0: Hello, Mage fans. This is Mage the Podcast. My name is Adam Simpson, and I'm joined by Terry Robinson. Today, we are going to further the series on Tomes of Magic, and today we will be looking at a book that is near and dear to my heart. And before we get into that, I got a question for Terry here. Terry, I asked you last week to achieve inner peace. Did you uh, take care of that? I think I'm about 30% of the way there.
1: I downloaded some apps Uh, I found some articles, there was a listicle on Buzzfeed, five ways to improve your inner peace punctuated by gifts. I read through that a couple of times. There were some at the Buddha Twitter accounts that I started following and I'm gonna say I'm at
0: least a third of the way towards inner peace hey not bad all right well as you probably guessed today we're talking about the tradition book akashic brotherhood and this is going to be the first one but you know before we get into that terry i think you had uh one or two things to uh, share with us in the way of announcements
1: thank you to all the listeners who went to storyteller vault to buy my supplement it was briefly number two if you haven't gotten it yet by all means please do if you meet me somewhere and you see that I have my Maid's the Podcast t-shirt on, which may or may not exist as at the time of this recording, but I'm working on it, I will gladly sign your ebook. I don't know what that means, but I'll probably have a Sharpie on me, and I can write it on your Kindle or something. I'll probably result in property destruction. But nonetheless, for you, that is something I will do, dear
0: listener. <laughs> I'd like to be there when we have some of those signings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, today we are looking at uh, the Akashic Brotherhood uh, tradition book. This was put out in 1994. This was written by Emery Barnes, who did not have any contributions or assistance uh, from other people. And, of course, it was edited by uh, Satyros Bracado. We are still in the first edition days, uh, not too long after Mage got its start, uh, way through 1993. Now, the Akashic Brotherhood is one of my three favorite traditions. Traditions. I've talked to so many mage fans who have a favorite tradition or a favorite convention. When people ask me, it's like, well, the best I can do is to narrow it down to three. I really like the Akashic Brotherhood, the Hermetic Order, and the Celestial Chorus. Uh, I think those are those are three great ones. But this is uh, also reminding me a lot of my college days when I did a uh, full year of study over in Japan. And at one point, we took a uh, class trip where we toured around some famous uh, historical cultural sites of Japan. And one of the spots we went to was Miyajima. That is a small island closer to southern Japan. It's... um, Uh, very close to the large city of Kobe. And uh, that island has a special religious significance. It has on it a very old uh, Shinto shrine and an old uh, Buddhist temple. And because of its location, you can uh, walk uh, up the mountain and uh, get to the uh, Buddhist temple. And uh, I remember going into uh, one of the buildings there where they had the shoji screen opened up where you can sit on the tatami mat right on the edge. And the... The mountain tilts right down below you so you have this amazing view of the bay and the mainland in the distance and a large section of miyajima right below you and uh, i remember just uh, you know, smelling the aroma of the incense from the temple and seeing that amazing view and seeing the sun setting in the distance and i remember thinking to myself if this isn't an akashic chantry it should be
1: Please tell me you were actively thinking that at that point, and you were the world's coolest person.
0: No, I, I really was. I, I was a mage fan in my, my college days, and, and I, was, I was sitting there thinking that. It's like I could I saw some monks walking around below there, and it's like, man, I'll, I'll bet if I, if I misbehave, <laughs> they're going to come up here and seriously thrash me. I, I'm just, just expecting it. <laughs> what is your level of fluency in, in any East Asian languages? Uh, well, let's see. Um, I spent three months in China. They tried to teach me Chinese. I was a poor student. I'm, I'm just going to chalk that up to tonal languages, not my specialty, but uh, I, think, I think this really, it's, it's, it's me. But uh, in Japan, I've been there uh, multiple times. Uh, I was pretty good with Japanese in my college days. Now I'm at the point, I've noticed in recent trips, where I get to Japan and I know a few pat phrases, And after three days, there's a click in my brain. It's like, oh, I can talk Japanese again. Oh, great. That is so convenient. And I can talk to people. And then I get home. And three days after I get home, it's like, click. Uh, How do I say? uh, What's that word? Darn it. (laughs) So... It's, it's one of those funny things. No, I spent some time in Thailand, and that, again, is a tonal language. I just I was just helpless. I could not pick it up. So I wanted to start off this episode a little differently than some of the past episodes. I wanted to, to take this chance to uh, just hit on a, a few notes of of uh, East Asian philosophy and tradition and how they connect rather well to the Akashic Brotherhood. And I'm certainly no expert, so you shouldn't be looking to me for the answers. Uh, First off, I've talked with uh, a number of mage fans who find it odd that a group that is so concerned with uh, the mind, philosophy, and transcendentalism spend their time focusing on fitness, fighting, and weapons training. I always thought Do was the very awkwardly named uh, martial art because uh, in Japanese, Do, means like path or, or road or, or way, just like Dao does in, in Chinese. You know, the way is Taoism. Is I'm not certain about Chinese, but in Japanese it's just an everyday word for you know a path you can walk on on, a, on the side of a mountain or a road you can drive your car on. So I would not be at all surprised if I sat down to play mage with some Japanese people and they said, uh, the Akashic Brotherhood, why are they into road construction?
1: Yeah. I assumed it was do all of the Korean do from Taekwondo, just meaning way, and that is the extent of my knowledge of Korean, and we're done.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess I shouldn't get too hung up on on that one, but I'm just I just have flashbacks of seeing road signs in Japan. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that uh, really stands out to me is the. Uh, one of the legends of the Shaolin uh, Monastery from China. Now, of course, there are a lot of legends surrounding that, but uh, one of the very well-known legends, which is probably true, uh, speaks of a time uh, many years in the past when a uh, official uh, delegate of Buddhism from some temple in what is today India traveled a long way to visit the Shaolin Monastery. And Uh, According to the legend, uh, he was supposed to be a very important person, and everyone at the Shaolin Monastery was very eager to impress him, and so they gave him a full tour of the whole monastery and and, uh, tried to put on their best face, and at the end of the tour, according to the legend, the um, uh, the Chinese uh, monks said to their delegate, So what do you think? How are we doing? Are you impressed? And the monk said, this is absolutely terrible. This place is a disaster. You guys have got it all wrong. Your monks are falling asleep during meditation. You're, you're sloppy. Uh, you're a mess. This will not stand. He said, I'm going to whip you guys into shape. He said, starting tomorrow, we are going to do combat training. Now, uh, of course, that might sound a little odd to a lot of us today. Well, what are Buddhist monks, even from India, so interested in combat training? Well, it really... Uh, When you go back hundreds of years, they they didn't have as much of a concept of uh, like exercise or physical fitness. You know, in the ancient world, both Western or Eastern, if you wanted to get someone into shape, you you train a man to fight, and yeah, he's going to be in in shape. So uh, according to the legend of Shaolin, that's how they got started in their Chinese martial arts. And according to the legend, after they were training their monks to fight, they were more successful in their meditations, they were more diligent in all of their practices, and so they continued doing it, and of course, it's over time, it slowly morphed into a Chinese kind of combat training, not an Indian kind of combat training. Uh, and the basic thinking goes, if you whip your body into shape, the mind will follow. And that is the basic thinking for the Akashic Brotherhood. They get new initiates, and they say, look, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to train you in these, in Do, in these physical pursuits. And uh, when your body is in shape, uh, the mind will follow. And then that is when we can start teaching you the sphere of mind.
1: The thing I do like about it is, one of the recurring themes in the world of darkness is that there's no fat people. This is actually one of the few cases where they give like an in-world explanation of that. Like, oh, you want access to the mind sphere? Well, you're gonna need to be ripped and be able to, like, <laughs> run up the side of a mountain. And if you can't, you don't get the ability to uh, to shield your thoughts. So how about them apples?
0: Another thing I hear a lot about is, uh, of course, in, in the West, we have this undercurrent uh, in, in Western culture where we look out for the, uh, you know, fortune cookie uh, summaries and the, you know, funky uh, mumbo-jumbo East Asian philosophy that doesn't make a lot of sense. And sometimes that's due to bad translations. Sometimes that's due to Westerners imitating Eastern thought and, and a few other sources. But uh, I remember years back when I was reading the uh, quotations under the tradition descriptions in the first edition core book and the second edition core book for the Akashic Brotherhood. I thought, well, yeah, you know, this this sounds like fortune cookie material. First edition book says, first you must learn the craft of magic, then forget the craft and embody the art of living through dough. Second edition core book gives us this, first you must learn dough, then you must forget dough, must you remember to breathe for breathing to occur. No, it is just the same with dough. And so I read these when I was a teenager and I thought, this, this, this sounds a little corny. What are they talking about here? Uh, and as I come back to this uh, a few years later, I think, well, actually, I think there's more here than I first suspected. I, I think the writers at Mage were a little more on the ball than I gave them credit for uh, when I was younger. I want to share with you a, a short uh, shorter quotation from Taoist thought. This is from Chuang Tzu, The Inner Chapters, which is a book I'll mention more at the end of the episode, but this is a a, uh, conversation between a disciple and a master. It goes like this. I am learning, said Yan Hui. How, asked the master. I have forgotten the rules of righteousness and the levels of virtuousness, he answered. Good, but you can do better, said the master. Some days later, Yan Hui said, I am making progress. How, asked the master. I have forgotten the rituals and music," was the answer. "Better, but not perfect," said the master. Some time later, Yan Hui said to the master, "Now I will sit down and forget everything." The master looked up, surprised. "What do you mean, forget everything?" he quickly asked. "I forget my body and my senses, and I leave all illusion and knowledge behind me," Yan Hui answered. "In the middle of nothing, I enter the source of all." The master bowed you have transcended the limits of time and knowledge you have left me far behind you you have found the path and again when i come to this and and read this quotation i think is this guy bragging about having alzheimer's disease i thought you you know got a puff up puffed up chest when you learned something not when you forgot something i mean my wife gets really upset with me when i forget basically everything but um, according to Taoist thought, uh, there, there's more going on here. Um, um, there is this idea that there is a purity and a simplicity in, in nature that is naturally there. But human civilization and practices over you know, countless years have uh, built up uh, falsehoods, misconceptions, um, uh, conveniences that uh, distract people from really seeing these underlying truths that are supposed to be obvious all around them. And so not so different from some of the uh, uh, French uh, uh, thinking, like I think it was Jean-Jacques Rousseau We talked about the purity of nature and how society pollutes us and pulls us away from that. Taoism isn't quite the same thing, but it does have some overlap. Uh, In Taoism, they uh, teach that you should seclude yourself from civilization, from towns and cities and and groups of people. Uh, Get far away and by yourself and practice hard at the uh, foundational truths of Taoism. And that way you can free yourself from so many years of convention and get back to the basic truths and they go further than that they say that after you work and spend all this time studying and learning these things then you're supposed to right away put it into practice make it a part of your life a part of your daily practice and as you do that it will become natural it'll become a part of your day a part of who you are and so as it becomes a part of your daily practice you can as they say forget all of this stuff you spent so much time studying
1: would i be radically simplifying this if i said hey Take this thing, make it a habit.
0: No, that's that's a simplification, of course, but that is the basic point. When you make it a habit, you don't have to remember it anymore. And this maps well to the metaphysic of magic that we find in Mage the Ascension. Uh, disciples of all the different traditions and really conventions, they separate themselves from regular society. They take in all this knowledge, they practice hard, they learn it well and then they are doing it. Also, another big uh, influence that we see on the Akashic Brotherhood is Zen. And so I just wanted to take a moment to um, mention uh, what I've found to be, among gamers, a misunderstanding over uh, koans. Now, koans are, that's a Japanese word for these, short uh, riddles or short uh, teaching expressions. And in Zen Buddhism, koans take more importance than they do in other branches of Buddhism. And the true koan is a, a riddle that has no answer it is a problem that actually cannot be solved so i talked to a number of gamers who think oh yeah as as you get wiser and wiser in the akashic ways you can s- solve more and more of those koans it's like well technically i mean if you want to be really <laughs> like detailed about
1: it's it term solve like it's a big philosophical <clears throat> rubik's cube where it's like okay yeah. we're halfway through this koan we got all the white cubes on one side Really, <laughs> we're really making our
0: way towards enlightenment yeah and really a koan is supposed to be something that no one can solve the most famous koan of course is what is the sound of one hand clapping and uh, you know of course we've got a lot of jokes on that like the uh, simpsons episode where bart simpson holds his hands up and he slaps the uh the fingertips against the palm of one hand and there's a little bit of a sound he says ah that's the sound it's like okay I thought that was funny, too. But really, what the original koan meant was clapping is something you do when you put two hands together. So if you clap with one hand, what is the sound? Well, you can't clap with one hand, according to the uh, traditional thinking of the people who wrote this koan. So there is no answer to that. So the point of a koan is you focus your mind really hard on solving a problem that can't be solved. Or it chews up certain cognitive cycles. I I am a I have
1: a mindfulness meditation practice. Part of what is very important in that to me is having some sort of repeated mental stimulus, like repeatedly counting the breath or meditating on an image or something like that and th- fixing your focus on something like that frees up, let's say, 85% of your mind and kind of lets that other remaining quiet 15% express itself. So I could also see that a kawan is a meditative focus in that regard to to occupy the, the noisy, loud, wordy, thinky part of the brain and kind of let what remains run around and express itself a little bit.
0: Yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds very good. So
1: you know more about the Akashic Brotherhood than you thought. Oh, no. Mine is almost out of the, the Western meditative traditions. I find the Gnostics endlessly fascinating. Uh, so the, the actual Batin sect inside of Islam that would meditate on things like the impossibility of exclusion, uh, one of their notions was the idea that whenever you make a positive claim about God, you are implicitly saying that the opposite of that is not true. Like if I were to say that Adam is tall, I'm implicitly saying that Adam is not short. But the problem with talking about an entity one believes to be infinite is you cannot limit infinity by saying something that it is not. So a Batin meditative focus might be something like God is not foolish and God is not not foolish. And they found devotion in the cognitive tension required to hold those two contradictory thoughts in mind at the same time and in that space they believed that the the self that could understand the divine was more able to express itself i very much like the idea of here's a thing to do to chew up the noisy part of you and then the rest of the
0: of the mind can kind of do its work there was extra material written by the author for this book that was edited by the people at White Wolf and approved, but it was cut out of the book uh, only because of length. This book clocks in at the normal 68 pages for a tradition book. And so there was extra material that was left on the cutting room floor. And so what Emery Barnes did back in 1994 was he uh, dropped it into an email and he emailed it to Anders Sonberg, who was running Anders Mage Page at that point. So it went up on Anders Mage Page under the title Secret Sects of the Akashic Brotherhood by Emery Barnes. You can find that in the Akashic Brotherhood page under uh, Traditions on Anders Mage Page 2.0. So it's extra rotes and it is extra material for the four sects. And with that, uh, I'm ready to hear about the sections of the book. Uh, Terry, Woo! what can you tell us? I had a fraught relationship with this book. It was a case
1: of reading through it and me going, hmm, this seems a little bit off. I don't actually know what East Asian cultural practices necessarily are, but this doesn't necessarily seem like it's those. So there, <laughs> there was kind of this tension the entire time, and I would periodically jot things down to double-check on the internet and be like, do people actually do this? Because I, do, I, I did not want to conflate the practices listed in the book as reflecting necessarily a, a real-world tradition. The, it begins with an apprentice being abducted, a hitmark's head is, is kicked off, A guy taps on a wall two to three times and suddenly a correspondence for Portal opens up because that's totally going to happen without paradox. Uh, They suddenly find themselves in a chantry where there are seemingly infinite practitioners. And then the book (laughs) carries on from there. We get a brief section on what the theme, mood, and ideas of the book are. And uh, the first thing that confused the Dickens out of me is on page 10 where it says drama what comes and goes around, you reap what you sow, ideas and occurrences tend to spiral back upon themselves. Now, in some cases, it's listed as drama, and in some cases, it's listed as dharma. So I'm not sure which one was supposed to be used, but to me, that doesn't sound like dharma. But again, I'm a white guy who does math for a living, so maybe don't trust me when it comes to assessing the practices of other cultures. We have a thankfully thorough terminology section explaining all the special argo that's used by the Akashic Brotherhood. My favorite is they give you a definition of calculating, which is to make an educated assumption based on no f- known facts through extrapolation of information. Oh, I, good. I was always I, wondering. Exactly. That. <laughs> I had encountered the word calculating my entire life, and I never knew. And then it has some other words that are never mentioned again, like sword saint, which is a person who's pretty good at swords. So glad we got that. Then we get a section on the culture of the Akashic Brotherhood, where they, they do some pretty good painting of the scenery of what it's like to be at this sh- uh, chantry. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce the Akashic term they use for chantry. I'm assuming it's something like shu uh, Dao Yuan. That goes in the, if you correct me, I, I will fully anticipate that one, and I will nod and say, yes, what you said. I may even make a brief recording of it. That way, if I ever need to say it again in the future, I can just hit the play button on that. We get a brief section then on what Doe is, and the entire text is littered with these nice little asides that make mention to, I guess you could say, the poetry or the storycraft craft of certain regions of East Asia, I am not familiar enough with the topic to be like, oh, this story they talk about mages off to the side is actually a a takeoff of this well-known tale that is commonly told in this area of the world. So I just nodded politely and continued on there. We get more information about the Apprentice, battering ram and their past lives. We find out about Gentle Mountain and Fall Breeze. And we are finally exposed to the Akashic Record, where you have this idea that most of what the Brotherhood knows is not in books, but in people's heads. This one I found absolutely mystifying because they make reference to the fact that the Akashic Record is held within the realm of dreams. And I'm like, oh man, secret changeling crossover that nobody noticed except for me until now. And then I tore through every changeling book I could find as well as the revised Akashic Brotherhood book and absolutely no mention of it is made again. So I'm like, Darn! I guess the Akashic record is not secretly held inside of the dreaming. You're uh, too far ahead of the curve. You got to wait for the Mage Twenty supplement. <laughs> exactly. On that. Uh, maybe M5 is finally going to reveal the secret Akashiana Changeling crossover that we didn't know that we wanted. It then goes on to the history of the Akashic Brotherhood, which made remarkably little sense to me. They bang on about the Himalayan Wars a lot more than I initially remember, and they also outline the alternative view of the Weaver worm, and wild in the form of the tiger, the phoenix, and the dragon, which I literally had to write down which one represented what in the metaphysical trinity and constantly consult that throughout the story because there'll be a line where, like, dragon yelled at the tiger, and I'm like, okay, that's a metaphor for, okay, okay, I'm following again. But hey, if you don't have to do a little bit of lifting, then it doesn't actually count as reading. Talk about the Euthanatos problem, which was just kind of a a menacing chapter title unto itself. And again, it goes through a pretty standard history section. That is, until we get to chapter three, The Blossom and the Thorn, The Council of Nine and Our Own Search for Bounce, where we get nine, count them, nine pages of dense prose, where we find out that prejudice is bad. Now, every book had a section talking about the... Council of the Nine Mystic Traditions and the founding and their traditions interactions with other traditions. But here we get nine rock'em sock'em pages. The best part is there will be cases where a character will talk about their stereotypes of another character, but there isn't actually enough information to know what tradition they're talking about in the other person where they're like, see that guy wearing robes? We don't like those robed people. I'm like, okay, Which robed people wore this? This is the 15th century. Robes are kind of a big deal. Buttons aren't that common yet. You got to give them some more detail here, Smalls. Then we go on to character templates, which I thought were were actually somewhat interesting. And then finally, we get information on magic and focuses and rotes and such, which we're going to go into more detail later. But that was pretty well my experience of it. I read it from left to right. The one additional bit of homework I did for this, the book is littered with what I presume is either simplified or traditional Chinese ideograms. And from what I understand, they are excerpts from pieces of poetry. But I asked a colleague of mine who has a background in Chinese literature and is from mainland China, what they meant. And she just kind of stared at it and goes, it looks like somebody didn't quite copy this correctly. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, the, the literal translation of this one is the gentleman is flirtatious between water and stone. She's like, I've read a lot of, I've read a lot of ancient Chinese poetry and it seems like there's something missing or something added. And she's like, and we thumb through some more and she's like, this one says literally the sun triggers the barn to become transparent. That's, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And then the final one, she's like, this one makes sense. The general population finds the Buddha in their heart. So I'm like, okay, that I can get behind hands down. My favorite section though, is the discussion of familiars where they indicate that the uh, dragon scale practitioners tend to keep bears as familiars. And I don't know about you, but if you want me interested in your tradition, tell me that someone keeps a bear as a familiar. I am there all day long. That was your reward for making it through nine pages of how we've learned that prejudice is a bad thing.
0: I have a little bit more uh, familiarity with East Asian culture, but Terry, uh, I got to say, my reaction was basically the same as yours. And a lot of these sections, I was reading it through going, I'm not sure if this is quite on here. I mean, maybe I don't understand Asian culture enough, but now I'm starting to wonder if the author does either. So um, you're not alone in in some of your feelings reading through this book. I I got the general impression that the author had a a lot of enthusiasm to bring to the project and and had a neat idea, but the execution was not as good as it could have been. And as for the uh, Chinese characters uh, used on the uh, page margins, I have uh, two very fat and heavy Chinese character dictionaries, but they're both for people translating uh, between English and Japanese, because uh, uh, Japan has used the uh, traditional Chinese characters for a long time. And uh, it is possible that when you use uh, the uh, Japanese translations, you might get something different. I mean, one, one easy example is if you put the character for hand and paper next to each other, hand paper, In Japan, that means a letter, like I'm going to write a letter and mail it to you. In China, that means toilet paper.
1: Interesting. I would have assumed it meant paper airplane.
0: uh, So for that reason, if I were to take my Japanese character dictionaries and translate it through, I'm guessing I would get a garbled mess much like you got. But it it is possible that the author was looking at it from the uh, Japanese use of the characters rather than the Chinese. Well, I think you and I were talking before about
1: even if you do a perfect translation, there is also the cultural knowledge on top of that. My favorite one was I was in Germany, and I was reading over the menu, and in my very rudimentary German, I saw that one of the things was, oh, I recognize these words, let me see if I can translate it, and I saw that the dish was literally translated to hand cheese with music. And I'm looking over it, and I ask my hosts, what is hand cheese with music? Did I translate that correctly? And they, and they say in English, oh no, it's hand cheese with music. Haven't you ever had it before? And I felt like I was having a very small stroke because those are words next to each other that I do not consider to be a food. And it's just one of those cases where hand cheese with music refers to a particular dish. No one seemingly is quite sure where it comes from. It was lovely. The, the with music refers to it being served with onions in the same way that we might say a dish is Florentine if it's served with spinach or something like that. It's just a case where
0: you either have that cultural knowledge or you don't i had uh, a very similar reaction to the chapter on the external relations Uh, nine pages and at that point i felt like the author was really getting into his fiction and the characters that he has in his fiction but he he kind of forgot about his subject because as i I was reading through that chapter it's like okay okay, you're really into your characters and your fiction i guess that's great and everything but as a chapter for teaching me about external relations with other you know, traditions in the Council of Nine and what the Akashics think of them. I'm, I'm not picking up much here. It's like, uh, the the characters met this uh, verbena and they had a short conversation and then it was over and I'm like, yeah, okay. That doesn't tell me anything about what the Akashics in general think of the verbena, but and it was a short conversation 500 years ago. So it's not even,
1: like, contemporary in a lot of the cases.
0: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's like, okay, these are interesting scenes in the life of these characters of yours, but for the purpose of telling me about external relations with other traditions, you dropped the ball. So uh, in the history of the Akashic Brotherhood, I felt that there was quite an omission. Um, In a lot of East Asian uh, countries, there is a a tradition or or a period of history where they had their warrior monks. Uh, This was... Uh, quite pronounced in Japan and uh, Mongolia, but it was something that occurred in other East Asian countries as well. And I, I was kind of thinking okay, the Akashic Brotherhood has had an influence on sleeper society in East Asian countries for hundreds of years. Um, I would really like to see this link between the warrior monk tradition, which ran out of hand and caused havoc in a number of East Asian countries in, in history, where the Akashic Brotherhood, were they causing that and then later they regretted it? Or was this a case of the sleepers taking some principles from the Akashic Brotherhood and running off in the wrong direction and causing their own problems?
1: Oh no, that's entirely reasonable. In the same way that a byproduct of focusing on how you think things were 550 years ago is we don't really get an idea of what they think of the Sons of Ether or the Virtual Adepts. Yeah. And, and a group that focuses on the mind as opposed to another group who believes the consciousness can be uploaded into the internet. I feel like there's going to be some real interesting conversations there that we didn't get.
0: Yeah, it would have been really fun to see that. But instead, the author got carried away with presenting to the reader this cool idea of the Akashic Record, which I'll go on record as saying, I think the Akashic Record and Mage the Ascension is a totally cool idea. But still, it doesn't change the fact that the author got carried away and went back hundreds of years, and in doing so did not give us some good information on more modern Uh, Members of the Council of Nine Mystic Traditions and a few other things that are going on in the world that would have been really cool to hear about now One of the things about the Akashic Brotherhood that has caused some waves I guess in more recent years is uh, Some people have uh, become a little upset over the fact that it's called the Akashic Brotherhood Which seems more more masculine and not to be an inclusive term and that was actually met head-on in the book Uh, They said that brotherhood is meant to be a a gender-neutral term And uh, all members of the Akashic Brotherhood, whether male, female, or perhaps something different, they're all called brothers. And I guess it's nice that the author addressed this issue, but for my part, I I found it a bit awkward. Um, If I was going to go back 500 years to a more, some might say, conservative culture, like, say, China 500 years ago, and I'll bet you that women just didn't like being called men. I'll I'll bet you dimes to donuts that, uh, that they just weren't crazy about that so in my own chronicles uh, i've just said that there's an akashic brotherhood and there's an akashic sisterhood and the male members are called brothers and the female members are called sisters it's not so different from traditional buddhist uh, monasteries in east asian countries where they would get all of the males together and they would have the monastery for them and they would and In English, we translate that as the Buddhist monks, and they would get all the female members together and have their own monastery. And we translate in English as the Buddhist nuns, which perhaps is not the best translation. But if you if you go back and read books written in the 1800s and early 1900s, that's how they translated those terms. I was waiting for you to say monk and monkette.
1: So I was kind of surprised (laughs) when you ultimately said nuns. Did you like the part as much as I did where they're like, hey, we had a giant fight with the Euthanatos because they believe that they could predict who should be shoved through the wheel again, and we don't. When the opening fiction says, hey, that guy abuses his wife, I'm going to drop a Gaius on him to commit suicide when he gets home.
0: Yeah, I I can only speculate uh, clumsily at why this was. Yeah, I think there was an overemphasis on the old uh, Himalayan wars. It's just the fact that you had the, this is the fundamental difference between us, the Himalayan war
1: happened, and then the guy in the opening fiction literally does the thing that he says the Euthanatos
0: are so bad for doing. I'm like, that's, yeah. that's a little bit cute. It was it was awkward. And I also felt that something something was, was missed or perhaps handled incorrectly when you have this uh, tradition that going back into prehistory, has always emphasized meditation and and mindfulness and peace and everything. They get so whipped up during the Himalaya Wars that they are recruiting new members specifically to make them soldiers and send them off to fight. And of course, you can draw correlations with the uh, southern martial art styles of China where there was uh, times in uh, the past where they were specifically for weaponizing peasants. And, uh, okay, there's that, but I just have a hard time believing that the Akashic Brotherhood, who has this long-standing tradition, is going to get whipped up and say, to war! We're gonna go to war! Yeah, we're gonna kill all those guys! And then when it's done, it's like, oh yeah, peaceful, yeah, let's get peaceful again. It it just seemed awkward. Hey, the Vikings have produced the
1: happiest countries on the face of the planet so all it takes is a few centuries to go from warlike to having everything seemingly pretty figured out so that that i guess
0: but the akashic brotherhood went from peaceful to (laughs) warlike to peaceful again it's like okay now the vikings didn't do that not not as far as i know
1: Uh, But, for instance, the Catholic Church has gone through alternate periods of inward-looking versus being more worldly, let's say. So that one I'll give them. I I feel like that is the fundamental nature of humanity of, oh, we need to win, and we need to win big, being this multi-century sideline of this is not how Ascension is achieved.
0: One thing I notice when looking back at the uh, early first edition books and comparing them to, say, the the second edition or, or later books is it looks like when Mage was first uh, written, it really looks like the Akashic Brotherhood were supposed to be the combat mages. When you look through the first edition core book where all of the foci are, are specifically called out for each tradition, the Akashic uh, Brothers have focus uh, for certain spheres where you tie a sash around your waist and then you just wear it and the focus is in place. Or the focus is uh, doe, basically martial arts fighting. Or uh, you have a weapon in your hand and that's your focus for, like, these different spheres. So, the Akashic Brotherhood have an advantage in earlier first edition over other mages where their magical uh, rotes and effects are much easier and much faster to do in a combat situation. And uh, they were supposed to be like, uh, I don't know, the protection or the bodyguard for the Cabal. Like, oh, the technocrats have showed up and they're shooting, and now we're really in trouble. We got to get out of here. Well, the Akashic can run some interference and, and protect us while we, you know, hightail it out of here, and then he'll follow afterwards. I think that was. The general idea there was uh, I think this influence to bring in a lot of the uh, pulp fiction tropes of you know action and adventure. For example, the Euthanatos were the super cool assassins who could take out anybody, and the uh, Sons of Ether had these you know, crazy scientific inventions that could turn over any scene with a giant explosion or a giant spark or a ray blast or something. And the Akashic Brothers come in with the you know the super cool martial arts, the tough fighters who can protect the rest of the cabal. And of course, as we get into later 1st edition and 2nd edition, the, the foci for all the d- traditions were basically uh, loosened up so that you can choose which ones you like, which is an innovation I'm, I'm really behind. I really back that. Ricotta did us all a favor with that one.
1: The notion, though, of them being combat, like and vampires can dish out pain like they're champs, and mm-hmm. werewolves are 9-foot-tall murder machines in Krinos form. Oh yeah, And then, then to be like, oh no... The Akashic, who is largely incapable of dealing aggravated damage, and also has to do everything within arm's reach, is totally going to lay down the law on this. Um, well, I was thinking
0: <laughs> by by mage terms. I mean, the other oh, the yeah. other eight traditions, the other eight traditions are going to look at the Akashics and go, "Wow, these guys can really fight." And then they meet a werewolf, and it's like, oh, "Okay, Mr. Akashic, just just get out of here."
1: Or a mortal with a gun. Like we need to keep remembering the the power of a high powered rifle at great distance to deal 15 dice worth of damage and not know where it's coming from. And it's one of those things where it was first edition. No one had any idea where the game was going to go. So there's going to be a, uh, there's going to be a re a refactoring or a refocusing as time goes on to be like, Hey, anyone can have access to a certain degree of martial power in revised. We get the notion of the Holy warrior in the celestial chorus and so on. And like every, every Tradition has some manifestation that is heavily martial, and so every tradition has some manifestation that is hev- heavily inward and meditative, which I certainly appreciated. The one recurring theme from first edition that I found interesting was. I didn't realize it until I started rereading all the tradition books, but the focus that every tradition seemingly believes that the pure ones did exist. There seems to be agreement that in the, the great old time, the pure ones exist, the pure ones shattered, our avatars are shards of the pure ones, whether that is literal or whether that is metaphorical is up for debate. But everyone kind of agrees on that. It kind of surprised me to see that in the Akashic Brotherhood book. In my head, that was a cosmology that only that was relatively uncommon in the Council of the Nine. And this is just a case of me misremembering. So take that. I also like the part where he scans avatars, like he has an app on his phone where
0: <laughs> I'm well, like, still, "Let me get a good scan."
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, uh, "This one, this one's blurry. Can you try not to, to move so much?" And they talk about tra- uh, like tracking avatars. And that also seemed to be a thing that was that would eventually be changed. The idea that we don't know necessarily who's going to awaken at any given time. We don't know how to tilt the tables towards somebody reincarnating in a particular form. Here it was much more predetermined or at least determinable in a way that mystery seems to be added to the process later on in second edition and revised.
0: But uh, I really liked the Akashic Record in this book. I, I think the fiction kind of overdid it a bit. But uh, the idea behind the Akashic Record, I think that's an innovation for that is unique to this tradition. Now you could say it's in the dream realms. You could say it's in the heads of living Uh, mages you could say that there's some part of the high umbra that perhaps they haven't even identified clearly where they're storing their records but it's interesting it it brings the umbra into things which i always like i like having this idea of a hermetic say a hermetic mage will go to an akashic chantry and show me your library and they go in they see this a pretty small library and it's like ah, this is nothing much and they leave and it's like you you didn't get it the the akashic record is only like you know, 10, 20, 30% here and the rest of it is on a higher plane and you just didn't get it. And I think I think it's cool to have exchanges like that. Yeah, the one addition I'd
1: make to that is they go to the tiny library, which is just this room with, with scrolls or papyri or so on, and the archivist, not realizing that, that the archivist is the, the main repository of those yeah. records.
0: This book had heavy references to reincarnation. I mean, really turned up the knob to 11 on this and it, it wasn't long before it, it started sounding artificial to me I mean I, I I'm no expert of course but I have read a number of you know newer and, and older uh, translated works from from the East Asian countries and tried to dip into reading stuff in the original Japanese and yeah there, there's traditions where they talk about uh, reincarnation but this just took it to a higher level that that sounded a little strange to me. It seems like they, they fixate on past lives so much. I mean, there's actual examples in the fiction where a character is, is taken to uh, an Akashic Chantry, Chantry and they said, oh, you, you've been with us for all these past lives. so you, We're welcoming you, you into the next one. It's like, well, what about the guy who in his past lives was not a member of the Akashic Brotherhood Are they can exclude him? Or I mean, It just sounds weird. It seems like the Akashic Brotherhood, instead of Delving into their past lives—it sounds like a you know a fourteen-year-old with a who's dabbling in the occult, more than someone with all this knowledge of Eastern
1: tradition. And the problem I have with that is, I feel like it goes against a lot of the themes of Mage. Like, it is possible to thread the needle to say we how do we maintain the paradox of being both dynamic entities, but also recognizing that our power comes from centuries of tradition? To say, hey, welcome back, pick up where you left off. It it turns them into vampires, practically, these ageless entities that are pursuing love and debt and rage across lives, and they've been reincarnating for thousands of years. Also, it doesn't do a good job of separating the psyche from the soul from the avatar, which we never really get a good answer to. And they don't always, they being in this case, the author, doesn't always succeed in saying, hey, uh, vampires are eternal entities and that breeds stasis. We are, in a manner of speaking, eternal entities, but with continuous renewal, part of what we have to do is abandon the attachments we had in previous lives while still learning from them, which is brought up in one or two cases. But I feel like that that tension could have been brought out more, and I feel like when you do everything in character, you lose the ability to point at it and say, hey, guys, this is what's going on here, which... Mm-hmm. As a bad storyteller, I appreciate.
0: It seems like if you were to begin training with the Akashic Brotherhood, they wouldn't they wouldn't immediately say, oh, well, this is how you were in a past life, so that's how you'll be again. And isn't it great we're all together again? It's like they should focus more on the basic teachings and say, who are you going to be in this lifetime? What will you become this time? It seems more of a fit for me.
1: Yeah, this is a weird case where the the koan of show me the face you had before you were born is no longer a koan because they're like, hey, this is what you used to look like in a previous incarnation. It's like, yeah, we got this painting made in the 1500s. (laughs) Uh, Here you go. Yeah,
0: you. Okay, we're good.
1: Speaking of painting, I did I did very much enjoy the art throughout the book. I have no idea the degree to which it is consistent with actual styles of East Asia. I just found it visually pleasing.
0: Yeah, the uh, chapter header um, images done by Joshua Gabriel Timbrook, I, I, I really liked those. Um, yeah. I, I really liked that, that rough brush stroke, which is an art style that they are still practicing in Japan and China. Uh, when I was in China in 1994, there were a lot of people using that style of painting and they were putting them up in their homes and selling them at uh, street bazaars and stuff like that and so that was just a natural fit for me i really like those those chapter header images okay one thing i have with the book was it made it sound like uh, the older eastern artificers which later became iteration x and the akashic brotherhood were the only two mage factions in east asia in olden times i mean it Refers to them repeatedly and no one else. And it it actually talks about the struggle between them as if there are no other groups. Okay, I understand that at this point in Mage the Ascension, in, in first edition, the only written up groups of mages from East Asia were the Artificers, you know, sort of the proto Iteration X, and also the Akashic Brotherhood. But I mean, just naturally. I mean, anybody with with some kind of imagination is is going to speculate on on other groups or other traditions or other things going on. And so I I just have a beef with this. It's like, look, you should have made mention of of other styles of magic or other groups doing things in old Asia because this is, it's just too simplistic for me.
1: We don't have the Wu Lung yet. We don't have the Wu Kang as we all roll our eyes. But again, this is a case where you're a good storyteller, Adam, and you looked at this and said, well, this is an area with literally millennia of traditions inhabited by hundreds of different cultures and ultimately would would show host to billions of souls. There's probably a bunch of groups and I, being a 14-year-old, was like, ah, huh, everyone
0: from Asia is Nakashic. So, uh, yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah. That... <laughs> okay. Well, no, it, it, it doesn't take someone like me who's you know spent years reading a number of books and traveling around that region to see. That it's like, eh, this looks a little simplistic to me. One thing that I have to mention also is East Asian uh, cultures uh, tend to be a lot more uh, strict and you could say conservative than um, a lot of western people are used to encountering and so i thought it might have been a little helpful to have some example in here of the tension between a younger or perhaps western student joining the akashic brotherhood and then running up against all of these teachers trainers masters lecturers etc who expect real strict adherence to you know etiquette and and traditions and order and, and stuff from you know, hundreds of years ago. And there was really no mention of that in this book. I mean, the Akashic Brotherhood is going to experience some secluded chantry somewhere. I mean, that, that's something for storytellers to, to, to kind of think about and, and work into their stories. And it's, I think it, it was appropriate to make at least a, a glancing mention of that in this book.
1: We frequently talk about how there's going to be a gap between actual meat space cultural practices and what is represented as the magical analogs. But I feel like at least to note that, hey, in the same way that some of these prove to be stricter than what most people expect, even if it isn't necessarily the standard of the norm, you should make mention that there are probably groups within this that are highly devoted to, as you said, a, a conservative presentation of this, that this is a tradition that's been handed down over millennia and we will preserve it fiercely.
0: And there's always the dodge. Well, in your last life, you didn't mind that rule. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: that's like the Book of Madness, the world's worst pickup line. Remember me from your last incarnation? One, yeah. Like- but
0: uh, I wanted to uh, take a few minutes and talk about the sects, the four subgroups uh, within the Akashic Brotherhood. Those four groups are the Orange Robes, the Scales of the Dragon, the Yogi, and the Blueskins. And uh, I let's see if I remember correctly, uh, those four sects were changed for the revised era, which I really don't have a problem with. Um, I think it's cool that they had these sects. And you know, as Terry mentioned uh, was, was common practice in the early first edition days. They take each sect and uh, connect it to an essence, uh, for example, questing dynamic primordial pattern, etc. And uh, so the orange robes, are the largest group, uh, the largest sect within the Akashic Brotherhood. They are named after the orange robes that are still worn to this day by the Thai Buddhist monks. Uh, it's a common sight in Thailand today. Is, is you, I guess you could call them the orange robes. You, you see them walking down the street in, in any town in Thailand.
1: I know that color to be saffron. Is that the same as orange in this case, or?
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I, yeah. I, I, they call them orange robes here, but uh, you know, reading, reading things I hear in English, I, I see saffron, uh, and the colors are quite similar, so I guess it's understandable that the uh, author went to orange. But uh, the oranges are uh, the larger group, they're peaceful, uh, they're more interested in passing on the traditions of uh, the Akashic Brotherhood. The scales of the dragon are supposed to be the members who are more more focused on hard, direct martial arts, those aspects of Doe. They're very serious about their weapons training, uh, preparing for combat. They're very serious about uh, stepping in when any uh, Chantry or member of the Akashic Brotherhood needs physical defense from, from an actual threat. Uh, they're the ones who want to be the ones uh, doing raids on enemy Chantries when the leadership decides that has to happen and of course that's an easy tie in with the very popular martial arts films that uh, this author was uh, very enthusiastic about.
1: Yeah, the Yogi Dynamic are the spirit specialists and the Blueskins primordial essence focus their lives on ascension. The explanation the book gives is that they are called blueskins because as they near ascension their skin becomes blue as it is saturated with quintessence.
0: So I guess that's an explanation, but I don't remember seeing anything about that in any later published book on mage. So that was like one of those throwaway ideas. Yep.
1: I, I am merely reading said throwaway line from the glossary. So I'm proving that I did my homework,
0: okay? <laughs> I read the assignment. No one can accuse you of slacking off. Yeah. Uh, I really liked uh, the, the point on familiars. Uh, in my groups in the past, I didn't have players that really got excited about uh, familiars for their characters. But talking with other mage fans, uh, they've had a number of players who really got into the idea of their animal buddy. They, they really like familiars. And so for those a players, bear. this was helpful. A furry tractor and just ride that into combat. That's how you win a fight. Well, yeah, the scales of the dragon for their familiars are supposed to favor large and more dangerous animals like a tiger or a bear or something like that. And you might Sperm think... Sperm well, whale. <laughs> yeah. You might <laughs> think, well, that's kind of crazy. But actually, in these secluded wilderness mountain chantries, you can actually get away with that. Uh, you know, the, the tiger will come up to the chantry sometimes, get a pat, pass on some wisdom, and then run off into the forest again. And this can actually work. But if your chronicle is in New York City, then okay, we got to talk. I've never had much
1: much experience with familiars, except in cases where a character had a PDA or something that was also a familiar or something. That's about as as far as I went with that. I like the roats because I felt like they it, it succeeded in delivering a certain amount of flavor that the rest of the book didn't. We only got kind of sideways reference to like the Wujia. School of martial storytelling and of great legend, and of oh, these are some of the great heroic and epic deeds that were done by those before you, and that was kind of absent from the book until we got to this end section where each rote was kind of a little story where the nut of the story occurs and then kind of as this bonus you say oh by the way there's this rote and I thought that was a super interesting way of conveying that and pound for pound the, the appendix was probably my favorite section
0: yeah other sections it was probably my favorite too for example there's a uh, mention to something that in the book of shadows the mage player's guide that not a lot of people really focus on I talked about how different groups have their different hand signals or sign language and uh, not a lot of people focused on that but this uh, tradition book said oh yeah the akashic brotherhood they really do have their hand gestures and their signs here's an example of some and here's how they teach them and how they use them and and i thought i thought that was really neat i thought it was appropriate it fit and and i really liked that Uh, well anything else on the appendix before we move to the next section
1: um, I thought the character templates were, were, were fine. I liked that the superhero has one dot in intelligence. We don't have that pop up a lot in Mage, <laughs> which is enjoyable. I did like the two character write-ups they had for Raging Eagle and Gentle Mountain. And it was interesting that Raging Eagle had the note that said, whenever he leaves the Chantry for more than a week, the death of that incarnation soon follows. And I'm like, wow, that's... That's some heavy juju to deal with. (laughs) That was, I think, modified in Revised, but it is interesting that we do get these consistent characters across editions, and I do kind of like that thread, which we get to talk more about seven years from now when we get to the Akashic Revised tradition book. But I really had no further thing. They indicate that the kukri is a hooked fighting knife. That's not the kukri I know, but maybe I'm thinking of something different. I really would have liked pictures for the weapons, but this was the 90s and images were expensive. And I can just Google yeah. that, John, now. That very much goes in the previous conversation we've had where, hey, if we're going to do a new tradition book,
0: include hyperlinks. Yeah, the Kukri has a, a curved blade, but you're right, I would not describe it as being the thing
1: The art was perfectly fine. I thought that the focus section was kind of phoned in. Like some of them, I feel like if you're going to include some of these things that are going to be nonsensical to it to your average Westerner, i. e. me, at least give me an explanation. Like correspondence, large jars is listed as yeah. one of the focuses. I'm like,
0: I, I'm I'm gonna need an explanation for that. Yeah, I can think of some older Chinese legends where that that connects to, but I'm not, not going to go into all that now. But yeah, yeah you're right. It, it was a little clumsy and. Uh, uh, you know, as, as much criticism as I had against the Euthanatos tradition book when it came to the appendix and the foci section, uh, that, was, that was really gold. I noticed that for this um, book, there was no reading list, which I was like, wait, I love the reading lists, uh, recommended reading at the back of mage books, and this like, didn't even have one. So I'm not going to make this a long list. I got four titles here and uh, three that are appropriate and one offbeat. And so I am giving you a recommended reading list. For Akashic Brotherhood, First Tradition Book. Uh, first up, uh, you got to include the Dao Te Jing. Uh, this particular copy that I have, uh, they have the title as Dead Dao Jing. This is attributed to the uh, historical, some might say legendary figure of Lao Tzu, who is um, credited as the founder of Taoism in China before 0 CE or AD, depending on how you rate the years. It, it is not known if he was a real person or not but uh, this translation is by Robert G. Hendricks and it is offered to us by the Modern Library. This one was published in 1993. Now I really do like this edition because uh, not only is it a, a fresh translation but uh, the author was working with uh, archaeologists and they had dug up a, a collection of uh, ancient tes- uh, texts—I'm sorry—that was discovered in the 1970s, and much like the Dead Sea Scrolls did for biblical scholarship, this find informed a lot of translations of the Chinese classics. So these days, when you go to a bookstore and you get a Tao Te Ching in English, a lot of times it's just a reprint of a translation done many years before. But but with this translation, the the author uh, brought in the new found texts and uh, filled in some blanks in uh, earlier texts in in ancient Chinese and really gave us a a pretty strong book there. So uh, I like this edition. So stupid question, what is in the book? This is the foundational text for Taoism. This is where Taoism gets its start. Is it
1: parables? Is it an instruction manual? Is there another text you can kind of compare it to? I I am simply not familiar with it. I have heard of it, obviously, but what is actually in it?
0: Uh, it's it's mostly a um, i guess you could say like a, a philosophical essays yeah the author is is mostly saying uh these are this this is how it is and this is what things are like it's uh you in china it's infinitely quotable as they say a lot of one or two sentence lines you see in English are pulled out of this book. Some translations have the Tao that can be spoken of is not the true Tao and the Tao is like water and, and you know many other things like that come from this book. So it's it's not actually a very long book, but most translations have a good introduction and, and notes in it to, to help you understand the sort of poetic language that is, is very common for earlier uh, Chinese works. For, for example, the, the Art of War, is often uh, really hyped as this super, super book on philosophy and and good living and accomplishing inner peace and happiness and all this stuff. And when you look at a really good translation of the Art of War, you see it is actually a very practical hands-on nuts and bolts guide to how to arrange your forces on a battlefield so you win instead of lose. But the author was a member of the nobility and so he wrote in these sort of this sort of poetic language that was expected of educated Chinese people hundreds of years ago. And so in translations, it comes across as, oh, that is so philosophical when actually he's talking about, yeah, check if it's going to rain today because if it rains, it gets muddy and it's just crap on your forces.
1: Oh, interesting. So almost like Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, it was originally written as a wildly practical book. And only later did this kind of edifice of philosophicality, I guess, and super deep reflection develop around it. It's not a a direct thing, but whenever I think of ancient texts that are considered to hold super wisdom, but are mostly practical advice, I usually go to a lot of the Stoic texts.
0: Yeah, yeah. One example is that I've heard some people say, oh, Akashic Brotherhood, you should go read the the Book of uh, Five Rings, uh, you know, from Pan by uh, uh, Musashi and uh, you know, I've, I've read two translations of that and again it, it was a very very practical guide to winning one on one duels to the death it's like yeah stand so that the sunlight hits is in your opponent's face but not in your face because then he's a little bit distracted and you're not and then you could really drive the sword into his guts and it's like okay this is not talk about philosophy this is talking about stabbing somebody but okay i just spent a few minutes talking about the art of war and book of five rings i i don't uh, really recommend those as directly connecting to the Akashic Brotherhood, but I I do think they're great books and you gotta check them out. But uh, moving on to uh, number two on my list is Chuang Tzu, or I'm probably mispronouncing that, but uh, it's also called The Inner Chapters. And this is, uh, the authorship is unknown on this one. It was written quite a long time ago, although after uh, Dao De Jing. It was, people believe it was written by a number of different authors. And it is hard to attribute it to the real authors because a lot of the pieces in here are attributed to famous known philosophers of the past to try and add weight to the book. And so uh, there's a number of conversations here between Confucius and someone else that everybody is convinced, no, Confucius didn't really say that. Confucianists themselves say, no, we never thought that. But uh, anyways, the inner chapters is um, the source of one of the quotes I shared at the beginning of this episode. And that is basically a hodgepodge, a a collection of a lot of different short uh, pieces that uh, pretty much stand on their own. There's a number of old legends that are supposed to have philosophical weight. There's a lot of, you know, koan-sounding, confusing things here that a storyteller could use as really solid material in an exchange. For example, if you have your players, whether they're Akashic mages or some totally different kind of mages, they come to find some elderly akashic brother who speaks in riddles it's like oh i need some riddles now well hey the chuang tzu is your source you can get the riddle of the great bird who rises up from the sea and flies towards the west and then it's done and it's like wait wait what was there wisdom in there and it's like the akashic brother smiles it's like darn it i'm supposed to know that but i don't <laughs> and so there's a lot of uh, short cryptic pieces in here that uh, give you food for thought. They're fun to read and really easy to slip into a game session. Okay, number three is The Three Pillars of Zen by Roshi Philip Kapleau. This was originally put out in 1965. My copy comes from Anchor Books and was published a uh, reprint from 1989. It's the 25th anniversary edition, which has some Additional notes added by people in the introduction and this is a really solid book it clocks in at almost 400 pages but there are some specific you know illustrations and information on how to compose your body when you're meditating and a few things in the appendix that you can Easily skip without really missing much one of the things I really enjoy from this book is it has the ten ox herding pictures with commentary and verses this is a metaphor That is commonly used in zen buddhism on both sides of the sea of japan and it it metaphorically speaks of someone seeking enlightenment as compares that to someone trying to put a rope around an ox and, and catch it and so there's 10 phases of trying to get that ox and this equates to 10 phases of getting closer and closer to Uh, the buddhist idea of enlightenment and so there's there's commentary there's uh, traditional chinese paintings to go along with it and again this is the kind of material that i would pull into a seeking or a uh, a game session i'm doing with my players to make akashic mages look more asian that is uh, one to look for and my last one is the uh the wild card i'm going to throw in some manga here just just to be that guy this manga title is called orion this comes from Japanese mangaka, uh, manga creator, uh, Masamune Shiro. And yes, I am aware that Masamune Shiro is a pen name, taking um, famous uh, swords and, and other things from Japanese uh, tradition and turning them into a pen name. I think his real name is Mr. Ota. Uh, he lives in, in Kobe. And this one was uh, translated, it was was put out by Dark Horse Comics. It was translated by Studio Proteus by Frederick Schott and Torin Smith, who I've actually met at anime conventions. They're kind of fun to to, uh, talk to when you meet them. This book was put out in 1994, the same year as the Akashic Brotherhood tradition book. Orion is not a book that maps neatly to the Akashic Brotherhood, but I mention it because it is a very good reading for mage fans. I think it's very appropriate as an East Asian mage book. It is a sci-fi sort of fantasy book. It talks about an alternate world, not even earth at all. But in this alternate world, they have this really strange practice. They call it in one place, uh, psychoscience. And it draws heavily on uh, Buddhist tradition and uh, the whole time you're reading the book, you're trying to figure out, are they doing magic or are they doing some highly developed form of science? They, they talk about equations and numbers and, and measurements and, and devices, but they also have a heavy dollop of uh, Buddhist uh, uh, mysticism added on top. And so it, it's one of those fun puzzles. By the end of the book, I still don't know were they doing magic or were they doing science? The story of the book is a subtle commentary on Buddhism, so it, it makes it very clever. But uh, there's even some material that you might draw in for your more wild East Asian technomancers. They talk about uh, dharma equations, you know, taking the word dharma and equation and just ramming it together, and they do some odd things with this. The book even has some appendices where the author goes into more detail about uh, how yin neurons and yang neurons work which are supposed to be subatomic particles at a lower level even than protons electrons and neutrons and of course that's invented for this book but um, and it's a reference to yin and yang from Taoist thought and Chinese tradition and uh, the appendices uh, talk about that and how the energy, there's a diagram of how the energy works when the innerons and gangerons are rotating in different directions, really wild stuff. Also some more information about the world and uh, the history of it and some fun maps.
1: And because I haven't talked in eight minutes, I will merely note that all of this will be available in the show notes if you are not writing that down studiously while taking your morning commute or on the subway or whatever it is you, dear listener, do while listening to our podcast.
0: Um, I have three adventure ideas to close out the episode. A great avatar has been reborn and discovered by the Akashics. This child, now 10 years old, is being gently trained at a secluded chantry in Thailand. Soon, the child will be taken to the Temple of Inner Peace's Horizon Realm to meet Akashic leaders and delegates from other traditions. The characters learn from a reliable source that the child is a fake, and the Fondi group has used potent techniques to fake the child's aura and plant some kind of trap inside the child. The characters must either find the secluded chantry or gain entry to the rising realm in time to expose the danger. When they do, they will oppose their own brethren. Number two, a cabal of Akashic mages has formed a traveling Chinese acrobat performance group. In cities, they give performances but also recruit for local martial arts schools and Buddhist temple events in that city. Uh, The group uses a talisman on stage that has an uncertain past indicate it may be very powerful indeed. Marauders have attacked the traveling group and will probably strike again. The players must travel and perform with the group until they can uncover the truth about the talisman and stop the marauder attacks. This might be a good chance to develop uh, contacts, resources, and other backgrounds uh, for your players. Number three, Akashic leadership asks the players to investigate disappearances at Akashic horizon realms and chantries. It seems small peaceful gardens are appearing out of nowhere. Disciples who meditate or walk there sometimes disappear. The gardens often manifest as extensions of other gardens so they can be hard to identify. The players learn these gardens are tied to the Eastern umbral court. Can the players learn the way to the Eastern court? If so, can they successfully negotiate there? Why are the gardens appearing and can the missing disciples be found? So, hopefully, there's a, a few ideas there that might inspire some ideas of your own, but that's about all the material I have on the Akashic Brotherhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, on that note, I think it's time to draw this episode to a close. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, remember, if you would like to uh, talk to us or if you have any feedback for us on, on anything that uh, you'd like to talk about, uh, you can send us an email mage the podcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on uh, Mage the Podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and uh, Anchor, some other places as well. And when you give us a review on iTunes, that uh, in- improves our visibility so that other people can find us that much easier when they're doing searches of their own. Also, you can follow us on Twitter, at Mage the Podcast. And this episode was uh, funded by executive producers Richard Bat Brewster and Ira Grace. Uh, if you'd like to become an executive producer and help support the podcast, click the link on today's show's note show notes at magethepodcast.com
1: if you like me super enjoy when Adams dog is in the background barking reminding us that we have lives outside of this podcast also drop us a line Terry out yes and this is Adam Simpson saying until next time towards Ascension. my sense of overwhelming mediocreness
0: regarding this book may bleed through at times no I will I'll be doing that on the hermetic but uh, <coughs> don't mention uh, you know don't mention it nobody will notice